Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 132 with my guest listener, Tom Seiniger. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, an hour or two of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas uh, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Christ, listen to my voice. Doesn't that tell you? Don't you know right off the bat I'm a jackass? This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's, it's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the Twitter name you can follow me at. And um, if you want to buy me a license plate, you could have that as the... Oh, I want to take that five seconds back. Um, please go check out the website. There's all kinds of stuff there. Uh, surveys you can take. You can see how other people respond to the surveys. Um, you can join the forum. You can read blogs. You can support the show. Um, or you can just go there and stare at the screen and fuck yourself. A lot of people enjoy doing that. Um, let's get into it. Oh, uh, a couple of things I want to mention first. Uh, PodFest is around the corner. It is uh, Friday through Sunday. Um, I guess that would be uh, Friday, October 4th through Sunday, October 6th here in Los Angeles. Um, their weekend passes are still available, I believe. And uh, I'm allowed to give out one um, free pass to a, uh, a listener. So... Um, you know what? Maybe we'll do a we'll do that for um, for Podfest. I'll, I'll give. Uh, stay tuned. <laughs> I hate when I when it, it doesn't go smoothly. But thank God for your guys' uh, feedback, which lets me know that it's okay. Um, stay tuned to next week's uh, episode. There'll be more details on uh, anybody planning on coming, how you can maybe be the person that wins the free pass for PodFest. And I will be doing my show um, from noon to 2 p.m. on Sunday, October 6th at PodFest. Um, and it's in, uh, I think it's it's in Santa Monica, right near the, uh, right on the ocean. So it should be beautiful. Really looking forward to it. 
lot of great uh, people performing at that, doing their podcast at that festival. Go to um, LAPodFest.com to see who all is uh, performing. Um, I want to read this email. Um, and he, uh, his name is Christopher, and he writes, Hey, Paul, I've been listening to your podcast for about six months now, and it's been a great tool for my own recovery from childhood sexual abuse. Anyways, on your most recent episode with Cameron Esposito, you referred to a person as a she-male. The correct term is transgender. I know you didn't mean any, mean any harm, but terms like she-male are hurtful and offensive to members of the trans community. If you are still confused on how to talk about this group of people, refer to the BuzzFeed article, um, whose link I've included below, and the link is too long for, for me to list, but I'm sure if you went to BuzzFeed and, and did a search about um, everything you always wanted to know about transgender people, because I believe that's the title of the uh, of the article. Um, yes, I got a, uh, a bunch of emails from people, and um, I really regret uh, using that term. I am uh, I am a work in progress, and I'm learning. Um, in fact, I'm I'm happy to report that uh, I've got a listener coming in uh, from Orange County tomorrow to do an interview, and um, they're transgendered, and I'm looking forward to that because I really, as you can tell from me using that word, um, a little clueless um, about. That segment of our population, and I think most people are, and I'd really like to get to get to know more of that. So apologies. Um, I want to read this happy moment from a guy named Nelson, and he writes, One of my happiest moments occurred when I was about 11. A cousin had introduced me to Dungeons & Dragons, and my mom got me the uh, AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide for my birthday. I was so excited since playing that game had allowed me to finally be someone different. I could be someone cool and strong and handsome and smart, things I never believed I was. Roll some dice, invent a persona, and presto, I was someone else. I'm sure my parents didn't see it as anything more than a weird game, but their being supportive of my hobby meant the world to me. Thirty years later, I still get great enjoyment playing that weird game, even though I have finally learned to love myself a lot more than I did then. That's awesome. Thank you for that, Nelson. And um, that reminds me of this this quote from uh, Andrea Gibson. And she says, Our insanity isn't that we see people who aren't there. It's that we ignore the ones who are. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. <laughs> that is... Very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. You go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is 1% event. My body was abused. 99% judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. I'm here with uh, Tom Seiniger, who is a, a listener. Uh, he's 22 years old, and he sent me an email. How, how long ago was it, Tom? Uh, around Thanksgiving, so end of November, about probably 10 weeks ago. Okay. Um, you live here locally in, in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And I was so touched by your, by your email, and I think I related a lot to it 
too because there's some similarities in our in our stories and um and so I thought let's let's get together and talk and and record um tell us tell the listener about your uh your yourself your as I said you're 22 are you from here originally um yeah I'm from Los Angeles born and raised uh was spent my teenage years in Orange County and then moved back here about 4 years ago okay and what is the is there a career path um I'm a graphic designer right now which is what my dad did and then about 2 years ago I realized I've always wanted to do comedy and so I've started doing that at night I'm just starting out because I was too afraid to even get on stage for the first year and a half. That's a good instinct to have, <laughs> to be afraid to do something. Oh, no, I'm, I'm still terrified, yeah. but it's it helps. It's like I feel so good even for those three minutes that I maybe get to do a few mm -hmm. nights a week. Yeah. Um, so you feel like there's something inside you that, that um, you need to express that graphic design can't really yeah. express. I feel like I just need to be creative and I need people I want people to see what I do and like it and in graphic design there's it's more criticism than praise and also I mean sitting at a desk the last three years doing it I've gained about 40 pounds well what did you weigh 80 pounds before <laughs> that no I'm just I hide it with my clothes very well well, but, you skinny would be one of the first words I would use to describe you. So fuck you. That's that's very <laughs> kind. My girlfriend would probably not use that word ever. Yeah. Well, um so where would be a good place to start with with your your story? The, I, be, the beginning? I mean I guess the beginning cuz I feel like my childhood was very formative in how tense it was mm -hmm. cuz I was raised and I could tell from a very early age that my parents' affection was very one-sided. I could see that my dad was madly in love with my mom and that she was falling out of love with him very quickly. And How old were you when you first noticed that? Uh, probably about eight or nine. Because there would be times they'd come home from going out to like a romantic dinner or something and she would immediately lock herself into her separate bedroom that she had just moved into and wouldn't interact with him for the rest of the night. What do you remember thinking or feeling when you would see that? I would just think it's strange because all my friends' parents all slept in the same bedroom and as far as I could remember, my parents never had. Did did you worry that the family was going to break up? Um, no, because I, I, they always seemed to make up with each other and... So I thought it was going to last, and I also think uh, my mom was afraid to leave my dad because he was the sole uh, financier of the family. Um, and so when they did get divorced, it... Uh, at, most, at, at what age were you? I was 13. Okay. Which I think... So five years later. Five years later. Probably, I think that's the best age I could have been for it to happen. But I'm going to say 50 would have been the best <laughs> age, but no. it's You know, I, I, I feel like each parents relationship there's no hard hard and fast kind of rule about um parents shouldn't get divorced parents should get some parents should absolutely get divorced oh, and no, some parents should stick it out and fight it so oh yeah. no absolutely whenever i hear someone say that someone should stay together for the kids i just think that is that advice is not good across so the broad board. there are people that should absolutely not be together because i think 
it's good to have two happy divorced parents than two miserable parents to yeah. live together. Yeah, as long as I think those parents are still going to be in their kids' lives and not use them as pawns oh, yeah. when Which, they're divorced. Well, that's what ended up happening to me, absolutely. Well, the, let's back up a little bit. So, um, they're, you're, you're eight years old and you can see that your mom isn't giving your dad the affection that you wished that that she would give him or he wished that he was getting from her. Was there an instinct in you to try to be more of something, to try to heal it, or did you just feel like you were just a passive observer and nothing you could do would influence it and that wasn't your job anyway? I feel like all the affection that my mom wouldn't give my dad or even my sister, it was all sent to me. Oh, boy, am I glad I have you on as a guest. I walked on water as far as she was concerned. I I could do no wrong. She spoiled me silly. And to the point where sometimes the love felt inappropriate, I felt like she loved me in a way that a normal parent doesn't really love a child. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it was great because, because she doted on me so much and spurned my dad all the time that he developed like a little bit of an Oedipal complex I think and so he I feel like he might have not resent is too strong of a word but I feel like he pushed himself away from me when I was a kid because we've me and my dad have only had a good relationship I'd say within the last four or five years how would your mom's relationship to you be inappropriate I feel like she only wanted me to spend time with her and never anyone else. When I like when I first started dating, she was incredibly jealous of any girl I brought around, even male friends, like even my guy friends, like I there'd be times when she'd fake having an illness or I would need to take her somewhere because she was too weak to go just so she could spend more time with me and me not be able to be around anyone else. Wow. That's that's a heavy burden. It, it it's yeah. I finally like, and I put up with it for a long time. Like, right before I moved back to LA, my last night with my friends, my mom faked that she was hearing voices from her medication and made me take her to the hospital. So on the last time that I'm probably going to see my friends for at least a few months, I was taken away from them, and I was furious about it. But there was nothing I could do. I couldn't say no. She made such a convincing argument. Did you believe that she was really hearing voices? Mm, I think a little bit of me bought into it, but by the time I was there and taking her to the hospital, she seemed completely fine. And then I was just stuck having to wait in a waiting room until three in the morning. Has there been another man in her life since your dad? Um, there was. She was with a much younger guy after my dad, and that just made my skin crawl. Yeah, it's, oof, it was, it was, the worst. Um, but kudos to that guy for putting up with her for as long as he did. How old was she, and how old was he? When my parents got divorced, my mom would have been in her—I don't know her exact age—but she would have been in her late forties, and he was probably in his early thirties. Yeah, that, that that doesn't. I for some reason I was picturing that he was like your age. No, yeah. no. Uh, I mean it's the age difference was something I see here living in LA every day. But to a thirteen-year-old kid, it was very strange. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
but since then there's been there was no other man in her life but i definitely felt like i was the only person that mattered to her and that i needed to constantly be around or else something terrible would happen so you you felt like you were her emotional savior kind of yeah i i certainly was at what age do you remember consciously feeling that you were like her emotional, you had to be her emotional savior? Probably 15, 15, 16, like right at the height of like, you know, when I first started like going out and hanging out with my friends all night, started dating, definitely like there was a change. I wasn't like her little boy she could control anymore. I was like this new person who didn't want to spend every waking minute with her. That must have, in her sickness, that must have been so threatening to her, if if you were her life preserver. Oh, absolutely. There was a time in ninth grade, so I would have been 14 or 15, where I got mono and had to drop out of school for six months because I was bedridden. She must and, have loved that. Oh, I've never seen her happier. I think I, it was probably the greatest time of her life. Wow. Yeah. It wasn't bad for me either. I got to miss six months of school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are, what are some, some other seminal moments from, from childhood that, that you can, you can think of? Or is that, is that kind of the, 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 the big important ones? I think that's a, that, and I realize now, like, not having a relationship with my dad, like, I, when I was a kid, it didn't really get in the way, but now I kind of wish he was there more, because, like, there are times when I feel like I'm not, like, a guy, like, I don't know how to do manly things. I don't even know how to ride a bike because he was never around to teach me. And so some, sometimes things like that will come up and I kind of wish he'd been around more. But he was working incredibly hard. But he, I don't know, he had time for my sister and not for me. And I feel like, but my, then again, my mom had time for me and not for my sister. So I felt like it felt normal almost. I thought maybe that's just how it was with parents and children. You know what? From what I've read, that's a pretty common thing that yeah. happens in in um, family dynamics. Is they kind of pair off parents and and siblings kind of pair off and become each other's you know best buddies. Obviously, sometimes to a degree that's that's not healthy. Um, so you're 15 years old, and you're beginning to feel that pull between becoming your own person and hanging out with your friends. And your mom wanting you home, how how does that begin to affect you? Oh, I started to rebel and act out in ways that any teenager would. I started smoking when I was fifteen and still do, unfortunately. Um, I never really drank heavily because I never liked the way it made me feel or the way it tasted, which I still can't stand. Um, but like when I was 17, I was a complete mess. I was sneaking off at lunch to do cocaine in my car and ditching class to go hang out with my friends who were not good people. And I realize that now. But yeah, I feel like just anything... I think I wanted her to see that I wasn't that perfect child that she loved. I wanted her to see like that I wasn't a good person and she was better off having me out of the house. Did you, did you feel also like there was a part of you that thought, if I can become 
less lovable, she won't cling to me as much? I think so, because I think that's what was... Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think... I thought if I become this... I wouldn't say I was a drug addict, but I think I was trying to put out the appearance that I was, so she'd sort of push herself away from me. And then I realized that she was a drug addict the entire time I was doing that, so wow. she had no idea. So what was your mom addicted to, um, other than you? <laughs> uh, she started out taking Ambien prescribed by a doctor to fall asleep easier, and then she started taking upwards of five Ambien a day all throughout the day just to try to numb mm. herself. And it was almost solely Ambien. Like, once in a while, I'm sure there were other pills in there, but pretty much it was solely Ambien, and it completely changed who she was as a person. How so? She used to be, like, very funny and very witty, extremely smart. She was an extremely smart person, and she just kind of became this zombie who never got out of bed anymore. Wow. Yeah. So, how did that progress then? Where did that where did that go? Um, it led to she started doctor shopping, buying pills that were questionable off of the internet, spending upwards of I think over $1000 a month on Ambien alone. Wow. She would make me buy it for her sometimes or try to persuade me to. I didn't do that more than twice, I don't think. And eventually, I think it just let... I just think she didn't even want to be a person anymore. I don't think she wanted to be awake and be conscious. She just wanted to be asleep all day. Maybe her falling out of love with my dad, if that is what happened, is what made her look for an escape like that. I think also she might have just been bored. Yeah. People get bored in marriages. Oh, yeah. She, I think she was just bored with her life in general. She was... She was a very she was a well off housewife. Her kids were at school all day. Her husband was gone for weeks at a time with clients and stuff. And I think she just didn't have friends to fall back on and just got bored and started to occupy herself by popping pills all day. So then, what's what's the next progression of either her sickness or your issues or uh, your relationship? Once I moved out and moved back to L.A., she was on her own, and... And had she gotten help at any of this point by going to a therapist or um, something for her addiction? Uh, or was she in denial about her addiction? Uh, there was... Actually, when I moved out, I completely forgot this even happened. Um, How she, old were you when you moved out? Uh, 19. Okay. Uh, and so her... Just, just three years ago. Yeah. And her and her sister had, uh, her and my sister, sorry, had moved in with each other because my sister knew my mom couldn't be alone and my sister could have, with, you know, my mom's alimony had a much easier way to pay the rent for a nicer place. So they moved into together. It lasted about two months because my mom immediately started talking about killing herself. And so that's when me and my sister tried to take her to therapy and try to check her into a rehab program and she just refused to go refused to get help and that's and then she moved out on her own you know parents that confide in their children that they want to kill themselves that is such a 
fucking boulder to drop on them. Oh, it's it's terrible. It's terrible for anyone to say that to anybody because it puts the worst kind of pressure on the other person because you're suddenly solely responsible. Well, especially if that person isn't actively seeking help. If yeah. they're just standing still in their in their shit, you know, it's I think it's okay to to share with a friend who knows that you're working on yourself and you're seeking help to say, "Man, I'm just I'm not happy to be alive today." I think that's okay and that can be and that can be very healthy. But that person has to know that you've got tools at your disposal that you're reaching out for. But when somebody is just stuck and doesn't want to take anybody's advice and doesn't want to ask for help, I just think that is incredibly selfish, especially to do that to your, to your, um, to your kids. And she was, and when we took her to the therapist and had a family therapy session, she was mean. She was, it wasn't, she didn't think we were, doing it because we love her and we want her to get help, she just started attacking us immediately. And I think that was really the beginning of when me and my sister just couldn't do it anymore and we just started cutting off contact slowly but surely. How did that feel? Good. It would have been like a vacation. Oh, it it felt great. I was... You know, I had just started art school and I just... I was living on my own for the first time and I just didn't need that like creeping up my neck every day what would you feel like and again this is me bringing my story to play here what would it feel like does it feel like when you see your mom's number come up on your phone um i i feel like i should have mentioned this uh she did pass away a few weeks ago oh my god yeah i can't believe i forgot to mention that i think it's just still such a new thing that it doesn't seem like a part of my life yet i'm so sorry it's it's okay it's it sucks to say this but i feel very relieved did she take her life she did the toxic the uh toxology report hasn't come back yet whether it's accidental or intentional but i know it was intentional i'm so sorry it's it's a, it's it sucks that that's what had to happen, but it is it's what she wanted, and she got it, and all of our lives are going to be easier now. I hate to say. Thank you for being honest uh, by by saying that because I think a lot of people wouldn't be able to to say that. You know, I I had this thought when I walked past my mom's bedroom when I was staying with her a couple of years ago, and. I was up before her and she was still in bed and as I walked past I thought to myself I hope she never wakes up and then I felt like a terrible person for thinking that and then I thought you know what your feelings are your feelings no and that's a I feel like that's a totally normal way to feel when you have a parent who's abusive in one way or another yeah it's just why does my life have to be so stressful and so terrible because of your shit yeah. So many parents can't recognize that they're putting their needs ahead of their children because they're so trapped in their sickness. And, you know, it just, it really bums me out that people have to think that suicide is a better option than reaching out for help. Because if your mom had reached out for help, if she'd overcome that fear of opening up 
to people that are appropriate. Yeah. Um, who knows? Who knows what what might have happened? But that fear is so. It's so intense. That fear of. I can't imagine what happened in your mom's life that made being vulnerable so scary. I I don't know to her, and I don't think I'll. Ever, I would definitely never know now. But I don't know. I she, it just seemed like she never wanted help. About two years ago, which was her first suicide attempt, it became clear after that that she had no intention of ever getting her life back on track. There were some times when she did show hope when she was in various programs and talked about, you know, getting a job, getting her own place, and getting her life back together, and then immediately after she would go out of the programs, she'd start doctor shopping again and would invariably end up in the hospital. So she did try to get sober? I I think she tried to appease me and my sister... And but I don't think there was ever really an intention. I mean, she got two of the rehabs she was in. She got kicked out of because her talk screens would come back positive. Yeah, nobody can get sober for somebody else, at, at least not long term. That's that's my that's my belief. You may go in and get sober for other people and then want it for yourself, but ultimately, there's so much kind of painful work that needs to be done to recover that you've got to want to want it like a drowning person wants a life preserver. Yeah, no, you have like speaking as a sober person, like for your doing it for yourself is the only reason to do it cuz you should be the person that's most important to you. And I mean, I was never a huge drinker or anything before, but I just figured my life will be better without this if I just have a clear head all the time. And once I realized I was doing it for me, it was easy. And and so have you just um, maintained sobriety on your own or do you go to support groups? No, it was just, it was, I mean, I think my sobriety is not an important factor in my story because I was never, I never hit rock bottom or even hurt anyone doing it. But I just, one day I decided I don't need to drink or do any drugs. I'm just not going to do them. Oh, that must be nice <laughs> to be it's, able to do that. <laughs> there's there's moments when it's hard. Like, yeah. obviously, when I got the call telling me that my mom had passed away, I immediately wanted to at least have a beer or something. But then that passed within a few minutes. And What what was your first, when you first got that phone call, what what did you think, feel? What? Um, I was a call from a block number, and usually... That was that's for the last two years that has been someone telling me she's in the hospital for some reason or another. And I picked up and the other voice in the end says, you know, this is Officer Torres with the LAPD. And I immediately thought, oh, here we go again. I have to go to the hospital now and come pick her up. And then he said, um, I'm looking for Francie Seiniger's next of kin. And my heart just dropped. And, I mean, I'd been expecting that phone call for the last two years, and I thought I was mentally prepared for it, but I wasn't, and... How can you ever be? I don't know. There was there was a few minutes of calm where I was able to rationally think about it, and then I just cried for about three hours. And then 
and then I got it out and that was it. And I haven't cried about it since. And it then it's now just that sense of relief that it's over. I don't have to constantly have in the back of my mind that thought, is today going to be the day when I get that phone call? That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. So let's talk about you and what you struggle with. Anxiety, I think, would be the number one thing. I've always been a very stressful person. I've struggled with panic attacks since I was probably 12 or 13 years old. And how would they present themselves? What did it feel like? What were your thoughts? Uh, The pretty classic panic attack of just my heart pounding, um, sweating, feeling like I am having a heart attack, like something's very wrong, I'm not going to be okay. And then sometimes uh, I'll get so worked up that I faint, which I prefer because I wake up feeling mostly okay. But then, Faint, like standing up or sitting down. You, oh, you, I can't stand when I'm having a panic attack. Oh, I okay. immediately will sit down, even if it's just on the sidewalk. I will just sit down on the ground because if I try to move, I'll, I'd probably fall over, just teeter. Uh, and yeah, but sometimes when I don't faint, I'll they la- they'll last for over an hour sometimes. Oh, that's got to be agonizing. Oh, it's it's terrible. And there's a lot of involuntary crying, which I don't like, because it makes it very hard to hide if I'm around people <laughs> when that happens. What's with the dude losing his shit on the curb? Oh, the, I had one at work, and people, God bless my coworkers, they all just carried by as if nothing was going on, which is great, because the last thing I want is attention for that reason. And then someone saw how sweaty I was, and they're like, are you sick? You should just go home. And that was good. I was able to avoid having to tell them I was having a panic attack. So what what kind of support system, if any, do you do you have in place to deal with this stuff? Um, I have started seeing a therapist sort of infrequently, uh, and it helps. He, I haven't been prescribed medication for it because I don't because I feel like. And he feels also that it's not completely necessary for me because it's fairly infrequent and I'm a- I've been able to manage it for so long but it's just ha- it helps with the everyday stuff because if even the smallest problem presents itself to me it becomes the size of the world on my shoulders like when you're in panic attack mode or just in general oh just in everyday life like the other day um my car thermostat went above the middle for the first time and I immediately pulled over and started googling on my phone what could be happening i thought my car was going to explode if i kept driving it and it's and every small problem is the biggest problem i've ever faced in my life at that point man when the when the mind decides it's going to extrapolate into the doomy future it is a powerful fucking cgi death machine oh it's i have the worst sort of 70s Scorsese downward spiral <laughs> every day. The worst is, like, I, the reason I... Do you shave your hair in, into a mohawk and look at yourself in the mirror? <laughs> and maybe once more of it starts falling out, I'll do that. Uh, but, like, 
there'll be times when I'll send a text message to someone and they won't respond immediately, and I'll immediately go through a million different scenarios of why they hate me and why they're plotting to never talk to me again. I'll fantasize about what's going to come back, just the vitriol they're going to spit at me, and then they'll say, oh, sorry, I was in the shower. And then it's all gone. Yeah. Um, you know, as you talk about this, you're such a personable guy. You're so able to articulate your feelings. There's a genuine warmth to you. I can't help but think how much not only you would benefit from a support group, and I don't know what uh, what type of support group would, would, would work for you, but other people would benefit from having you in a support group because you... You have an ability to to be honest about what's going on with you in a way that doesn't feel self-pitying or draining, and I just think it would be so nice for you to, to be around other people whose brains work the way you do, so you can be reminded every day that, that I'm, I'm not alone. That is... So nice. That being said, I am incredibly draining on some people. I think that's what was always so appealing about stand-up to me, was these were people just airing out their dirty laundry, mm-hmm. and people loved them for it. Yeah. So I feel like, I feel like maybe that's my support group. Yeah. Um, may, maybe that's it, or maybe just try a bunch of, a bunch of different ones, because a lot of times, too... If you go to the wrong meeting for a, a support group, it can really turn you off. I have friends that have gone to su- support groups, and because that first meeting was an unpleasant experience, they will never go back because they're convinced that meeting represents all of that that support group. And it's that's not not always the case. Um, so I'm just I'm just throwing that out there, but. Um, those those wires to connect to another human being some people it's like there isn't even an inch of that laid yet <laughs> and with you i get the feeling that there's like some good yardage of wires already laid ready to connect to 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 other people oh, that's well, just my oh no my i'm sense. a t- i'm a total empath i love f- talking to people and connecting with people and i like trying to help people uh, admittedly, I'm not always good at it because sometimes I'll just get angry when people don't listen to me. But no, I love I love talking to people. So as you, as you say that, it makes me wonder if one of your challenges then isn't going to be not trying to fix people, but to to be there for them and to listen and to learn when to kind of let it go when they're not taking your advice and how to deal with that because that's something I've had to I've had to deal with you know very very early on um, I used to take it as like a a personal failure if somebody didn't take my advice and then I realized you know people hear what they need to hear when they're ready to hear it and some people like your mom were never ready to to hear it other people maybe they're 50 when they're ready to hear it and for us to expect them to hear it when we're ready for them to hear it, it can be crazy making not only to them 
it can be off-putting to them, but it can be crazy-making to us because we're under the delusion that we can control that person's destiny. <laughs> oh, God, I hate the word delusion, but it's completely true. It is. It's, yeah, when I offer help to someone and they decide to disregard what I say, I get so frustrated because I think part of the delusion is I think I know better than most people, which is not true. Well, but you know, if you think about it, the experience you had with your mom... How can that not create a certain grandiosity in you that here you are as a child who is more interesting and lovable than her husband, whose, you know, every move is fascinating and joy filling to her. So, and that doesn't mean that you're not a special person who, who has all of those qualities, but but it's and dude, I'm talking about myself as well. Oh, I know the mirror. Mm-hmm. The mirror I'm looking into yeah. right now is horrifying. Yeah, yeah. So our challenge is is to understand that we're enough, but not think that we are everything. Yeah, absolutely. And then on a bad day, nothing. Oh God. Uh, oh, I'm. I feel like I'm nothing. So many days, and but then the next day, I. You know, everything is going to work out for me. And I just wish I had more of those days. That binary thinking is so draining because the, the, the ego thinks you're either the king or the peasant. It can never have the concept that you're one of many, which is what we are. We're one of many. We're special in our own way, but we're not that big of a deal in, this, in the scope of the universe. And that, that, has, to be, that has to be enough. And to me, what makes that feeling that I am special but not that big of a deal is having a conversation like I'm having with you right now. It reminds me I'm not alone. Somebody else lived through a similar version of what I've lived through and we're both still standing. Yeah, I just... I don't know. I feel like I do need to remind myself that you know, everybody goes through their own shit one way or another, and everybody has everybody has trauma. And if people were just more open about it, everyone would feel a lot more connected. I think. Yeah, they would. And that's why I love your podcast so much. Is it's showing that whether someone's a famous comedian or a popular songwriter or just a listener everyone has baggage and we're all carrying it around every day and it's weighing everyone down we're all feeling the same feelings they're just coming in different packages yeah you know it's and that's the that's the best compliment that i can get you know that because that's what i set out to do with this was to show everybody experiences you know crushing self-doubt and you know, the feeling that, oh my God, I'm fucked. I've blown it. I've I've made a, a decision that is just ruined my life and there's gonna be no recovering from it. You know. I know, and it's helped me. I'm at like um Jamie Denbo's episode. Love Jamie. I, she's amazing. Uh her talking about being raised in that very overbearing Jewish childhood made me feel so much better because that's exactly how my childhood was. Like, 
we never went to temple or spoke Hebrew or anything. We were the most relaxed Jews Southern California has to offer. Did you build pyramids? <laughs> uh, look at me. I'm not good at manual labor. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, it was just that f- sense of fear is always there. Like, my mom used to say, if there's ever another Holocaust, you're so lucky you don't look Jewish because you'll be able to slip by while the rest of us are killed. That is so fucked up on so many different levels. Yeah, and I was eight at the time. So, yeah, so things I knew when I was eight years old is there's going to be another Holocaust, and because I have blue eyes, I'll be on the other side of the fence watching them thrown into the mass grave. Wow. Yeah. Your mom sounds like she had a lot on her plate. I think it's... Well, she was Jewish in a very small town where I think they were the only Jewish family, so I think it was ingrained in her that that's something you have to hide because she was attacked for it as a child. And I grew up in Los Angeles where there's nothing but Jews, so... (laughs) Especially because I grew up in Beverly Hills. Um, And... Yeah, but I still, like, because of what she would tell me, like, when I wasn't around people who I knew were also Jewish, I would just completely try to not mention it because I was afraid they would think differently of me. Because of the the thoughts that were laid in there by your mom? Yeah, I basically just figured, oh, I have to hide who I am because if they figure out who I am, bad things are going to happen to me. And, of course, that's ridiculous. There's never going to be another Holocaust, I don't think. But it for a for a while it made me like really try to hide what my real identity was, and like I don't I I don't really identify as like a Jewish person religiously, but like it's ingrained. <clears throat> sorry, it's ingrained in my DNA that I'm just I have those traits and I can't hide it, and people love it. I don't know. I don't know why people are so afraid to hide their demons. I feel like they make us more interesting and people love when you talk about it. You know what? My opinion on that is because a lot of us were raised in invalidating environments where our vulnerability was used against us and we had to shut that door to protect ourselves. And that's why it's so... It's been so liberating for me personally to find people who are like-minded and suffer through the same things because I can open that door around them and it feels amazing oh it's it's the best that's what you know oh i know like i remember the first time uh me and my girlfriend swapped traumas with each other it was the best i immediately knew that i was in love with this person because she was so fucked up also for different reasons but like she gets it and I don't have to use sympathy as a weapon with her, which is something that's really gross that I do a lot. Are you ever afraid or concerned that you're only going to be attracted to people that have drama and chaos in their lives, that you'll be bored by somebody who's present and open and available? Yes, and only because that's exactly what's been shown to me. I've gone out with well-adjusted people before, and they just don't seem as interesting and I'm worried if they find out about my life they'll think I'm too damaged to be with so I just and I think I just subconsciously know what people have trauma 
and I gravitate towards those people, at least in a romantic sense. Yeah, there, there seems to be something in some of us where there's like an unhealthy itch that only chaos can scratch and it makes us feel a, a certain excitement that we mistake for healthy attraction. Oh, no, absolutely. Like, when someone will offhandedly mention something extremely fucked up from their childhood, I'm, I'm like, a light goes off and, like, my eyes light up and it's just like, oh, tell me more about that. I want to know. <laughs> yeah. You seem so interesting. You Let's wanna, trauma bond. Yeah, you want to give me a boner? Cut me down. Oh, abs- oh absolutely. That's hilarious. Um, anything else you want to uh, touch on before we do uh, some fears and, and loves? I'm trying to think if there's anything I left out. I think something interesting, this is quick, and something interesting that happened when my mom did pass away is that a lot of my fears went away. Wow. Like, I just, like, I used to constantly be be scared that I was going to get fired from my job or something, and, or that I was never going to succeed, or that I was going to get into a car accident that day, and a lot of that's just gone now. It doesn't, it seems so small in comparison. Like, of course, I still have weird esoteric fears that we're going to get to in a minute, but I just feel so unafraid, and, like, a part of me feels a lot calmer. Like, over the last two years, my hair was falling out, like, in clumps randomly because of just the residual stress from what my mom was doing, and... And she had tried to kill herself how many times in the last two years? Four unsuccessful attempts that we know of, and then the final one that took. Um, the first one, she jumped off a four-story building and lived. What? I, which is amazing to me. Like, when we were at the hospital, the doctor said he said, he was like, oh, the fact that she's alive is a miracle. And I was like... Okay, don't use the word miracle. You're a doctor. I don't like that. That makes me doubt all of your qualifications. Uh, And then the other three were uh, attempted overdoses. But the fact that she lived through jumping off a building is... I... Part of me feels like she, I guess, wasn't meant to go then. But I don't know why, because it was just two years of misery following it. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot on your plate, Tom. It takes its toll, but... I don't know. I'm... I've got too much in front of me to let it hold me back. I just got to keep moving forward. Yeah. That's all you can do. It is. It's yeah. all you can do. And sometimes it's so hard when you're depressed or you're anxious because you just want to go to bed and just oh that's all well that's all i want to do all the time anyway but oh no there's there were days when i just i just couldn't move i would just be paralyzed by the weight of all these problems coming down on me and i don't feel any of that anymore and i'd just like to interject at at this point i see a lot of 
parents who fill out the shame and secret survey and they'll say that if it weren't for their children they would kill themselves that that's the only thing keeping them alive and to any of those who heard what you said and are thinking oh well then I should kill myself because I'm a burden to my children I'd like to say no I think Tom's first choice would probably have been that his mom gets help and sticks around and becomes healthy oh yeah no absolutely this this was the best case scenario because all the other best case scenarios had gone out the window a long time ago. Obviously, I would prefer that my mom be alive and well and I could go see her later, but she didn't want to be alive anymore and there was nothing, I guess, really to hold her back because we'd tried everything else to help and it wasn't there and I I don't think suicide's ever the answer but I feel like in her case it was kind of the only choice she had left because she was unwilling to get help learn a, a yeah. new way of living and to the parents who filled out the survey and said the only thing keeping them alive is their kids like that is like I hearing that breaks my heart but I'm just glad that at least they have that and I feel like if you can stay alive for your kids you'll find more things to stay alive for yeah yeah. and if you really love them even though it's uncomfortable get help for and yourself yeah, for your kids get help and stay around your kids are not going to be better off that you're gone ever no yeah some fears and loves? Yes. Let me get out my phone. You want to start? All right. Are we doing fears first? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm afraid that when I see a crazy, lonely, old homeless man walking down the street, that it's actually me from the future <laughs> coming back to give me a message, but he's too crazy and fucked up from time travel that he just walks by. I'm going to be reading the fears of a listener named Deborah. She says, I'm afraid that I will never lose these 20 plus pounds. Oh, I know that one. Um, I'm scared that there's going to be a financial disaster in my life and I'm going to end up completely penniless. Uh, I'm afraid that I'm going to run over someone backing out of a parking space someday. I have that one too. Oh, me too. And I'm also afraid that my brakes are going to give out when I'm going downhill and I'll just... Like, my car will take on infinite mass, and I'll just destroy all the cars in front of me and kill a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Ugh. And then survivor's guilt is another and, thing. And then the forensics won't be able to prove that your brakes went out, and they're going to say that you plowed into them intentionally. Oh, that's that, also where my brain goes. Oh, that's another fear I have, is that I'm afraid I'll get pulled over during a routine traffic stop, and there'll be a huge misunderstanding, and I'll be jailed for something I didn't do. Yeah. Um, Deborah says, I'm afraid that I'll never have the courage to try therapy. Oh, I hope you do. I'm just going to put it out there. Therapy's great. You should not be afraid to try it. It The way someone sold it to me was, you get to complain to someone for an hour, and they're, they have to listen to you. <laughs> I'm scared that I'll have to choose between comedy and my relationship. I'm afraid that if and when I do try therapy, I'll think I'm somehow smarter than the therapist. I think a lot of people do that and 
to which I would say it's not about smarts. It's about unloading an energy that's trapped inside you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There are times when I've talked to therapists throughout my life that like, I'm, that I get the feeling of, like, you don't know. I know. I know. Just, just listen to me. That's all it really takes is, like, just find someone who's willing to talk to you. I returned somebody's phone call the other day. It was, a, it was somebody who's new in our support group. And this person had probably called me three or four times before that. And I'd listened to them kind of talk about what what was going on with them and their and their struggles. And that morning that I called them back, I knew that I needed to talk about what was going on with me. And so I confided in this person what I was struggling with and they were able to help me. And so it's not about I mean this person is brand new in this support group, but they they heard me. I felt felt, I felt heard, mission accomplished. You know, so it's, you don't have to, somebody doesn't have to be a rocket scientist for you to get that feeling of healing. You just have to feel felt and heard and understood. That's, that's been my experience. Exactly. I, I feel like a lot of the stigma around therapy is that you're going in there to be analyzed and have medication thrown at you, but really you're just going in there to talk to someone and they're just a person. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh. I'm afraid that my cynicism will ruin great opportunities for me. Deborah says, I'm afraid that the only reason I'm staying with my husband is because I'm too scared and lazy to raise my kids alone. Oh, God. <laughs> that doesn't touch anything in you. Oh, that... <laughs> oh, that no trigger that, there. That ruins me. Yeah. Uh, I'm afraid that I smell really bad and everyone's just too polite to tell me. <laughs> I have that one, too. Uh, Deborah says, I'm afraid of someone sneaking unseen into my garage as the garage door is going down after I pull in. Okay, that's, that's like a that's like a horror movie. That one. Oh, I and, thought she meant like she's afraid the garage door is going to crush them. No, like they're going to sneak in and then you know attack her oh, as she's trapped in her garage. Oh god. Oh, I'm constantly afraid that I will be not robbed but just murdered for no reason in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I feel like that's a common thing, kind of. Um, I'm afraid I'll be stuck working at a job that I'm indifferent towards. Deborah says, I'm afraid uh, my oldest daughter is starting to pull away from me little by little as she becomes closer to her friends. There's another you one. <laughs> you can't relate to that at all. Oh, no, not at all. Um, I'm afraid I'll never be able to quit smoking. Uh, Deborah says, I'm afraid that I'll come back from vacation with bed bugs. Oh, I have that one. Oh, I had, I, I had bed bugs for three months last year, and it, I think it is the worst thing that can happen to a person. Because every day is a disaster and you don't want to go home and you're like, people, if you tell people you have them, the reaction is like, get the fuck away from me. Oh, it's like, I think how people would have reacted if you told someone you had AIDS in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. Just you're afraid if you touch them, they'll have bed bugs all over them. Right. Oh, God, I'm, I'm amazed that came up. Your turn or my turn? Uh, I think it's mine. Okay. I'm afraid that if I have children, I won't love them. Deborah says, I'm afraid the rabbi at my temple, whom I love and have been trying to befriend, has kept her distance because she thinks I'm not, quote, Jewish enough. Mm, I feel like if you have that fear, you're Jewish enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
I'm afraid that people pity me. I have that one too. Yeah. I'm afraid that my kids will grow apart from each other as adults and have no relationship as happened with me and my brother. I'm afraid that my dad and my sister find me disappointing. They think like I'm not living up to my potential. Deborah says, I'm afraid that the emptiness that awaits me, I'm afraid of the emptiness that awaits me when my kids have grown up. Oh, God. Uh, Deborah, I want to give you a big hug and encourage you I know. To, go to, to go to therapy. I know. I want to just wrap my arms around this woman and hold her for like 20 minutes. I'm afraid that my looks will fade faster than I'm able to handle. Trust me, it's not fun. No, I know. <laughs> um, Deborah says, I'm afraid my marriage has no real foundation. I'm afraid that when I die... Uh, no one outside of my family will care that I won't I guess that's also a fear that I won't leave any mark when I'm gone that I'll just have been ineffectual I think that's a really really common fear oh it's it's gotta be yeah be, but I mean I would care <laughs> well I feel like well, that's nice and I am a kind of immortalized in this now yeah no that just made me feel a lot better <laughs> Um, Deborah says, I have a fear of talking about my feelings. No, oh, that's Please cool. overcome that fear, Deborah. Yeah. Pe- people like when you do it. Ah, oh, they do. And if they don't like when you do it, they're not people you want to associate with anyway. Exactly. Uh, I'm afraid that all my teeth will fall out one morning. <laughs> that's it? No, just, that's... just, I, because, like, I haven't been to the dentist in three or four years, and I'm worried that one day, karmically... All of my teeth are just going to fall out at once. Have you ever seen the movie The Fly with Jeff Goldblum? Oh, I have. Yeah. Also, that, also it, that that's how I felt when my hair was falling out from stress. I felt like next thing that's going to come off is going to be an ear or yes. something. When he's when his teeth start falling out in that movie, uh, I like felt that in my bones. That was so gross. Um, I'm going to do Deborah's last fear, which I love. Uh, and by the way. It was just coincidence that I picked Deborah's fears to do. Uh, there is always this weird synchronicity with the fear and love list, uh, how sometimes they just feel like they were meant to to be together. Okay, well, with that prelude, I'm very excited for what this is. Um, she says, oh, this is just kind of a funny one. She oh, says, okay. I'm afraid that my two-year-old is going to start saying, go fuck yourself due to all the mental illness happy hour podcasts I've been listening to in the car. <laughs> I did that once when I was a kid said go fuck yourself not word for word but i was driving around with my grandma and i guess uh someone cut her off and uh, my reaction as a three-year-old was to say fucking asshole because i guess (laughs) that's just what i'd grown up around that's awesome uh should we go to loves we should uh deborah says i love getting the right tupperware lid on the first try that is a, a sublimely satisfying thing oh it's those small victories yeah. like like when you're in a new person's house and you guess the silverware drawer on the first <laughs> yeah. try or the garbage oh that that one I've never yeah. I've never succeeded finding the garbage easily uh, I love when I make my girlfriend laugh so hard she can't breathe that's a great one yeah. uh, I love when people tell me my children look like me that is nice uh, I love when I have a nightmare that I'm still in high school, and then I wake up and I realize that I'm done, and I never have to go yes, back. That's an awesome one. Oh, I love that feeling. Uh, Deborah says, I love a heating pad on menstrual cramps. 
I, I'll take her word for it. <laughs> uh, I love crying in movies. I do, too. Uh, she says, I love peeling a banana and not finding a single bruise. Hmm. I love when I have a negative expectation of something and then something amazing happens instead. Yes. That's a great one. Oh, I had one the other week that, like, filled me with light for three days straight where um, I was driving up La Brea and I saw a group of young transsexual kids walking up the street and up the street was this big group of, like, really scary-looking, thugged-out guys. And it was like a movie. Like, as the transsexual kids got closer, the big guys moved out of the way to hug them, and they had moved out um, from in front of a sign that said LGBT support meeting. Oh, And wow. I just immediately started crying when oh, I saw it. Wow, that's so it beautiful. Was, oh, it was... Like, it was just that moment of, like, oh, people are good. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many good people in the universe. There There's are. so many. They're everywhere. And I can't They're wait everywhere. to meet all of them. Um, Deborah says, I love the magical moment at the end of a cold where your nose finally unplugs and you can suddenly smell things again. I love that one. Oh. Not only can you smell them, but you can smell them better than you could, like, when you're just normal. Oh, no. it's I had the flu recently, and... That feeling that and when your ears pop from being clogged from being sick mm-hmm. and you can hear again. Yeah. Oh, if, if I could have that every morning when I wake up, I think all my problems would go away. I love putting on a new pair of socks or underwear. That is a good one. Yeah. Um, Deborah says, I love that my daughter can express herself well and articulate her feelings and emotions without any embarrassment or shame. That's nice. Well, she's raising her kids right. Sounds like it. Yeah. I love when I introduce somebody to something and they love it and I'm able to relive it through their eyes for the first mm. time. Uh, I love locking myself out of my house or car and realizing that I have a hide a key. Oh, that must that yeah. must be nice. I've, I've done that one. Oh, I've had to I've had to break into my apartments many times mm-hmm. because I didn't have that. I love discovering a new song and then playing it until I can't fucking stand it anymore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love when the planets align and all my kids are quiet in the car at the same time. I can't imagine how many parents love that one. <laughs> I love getting the answers right on Jeopardy before any of the contestants yes. do. Or if none of them do, and I feel better than oh, them. Oh, yeah. Oh. That's a big win for the ego. Um, she says, I love the sound of a football game on in the background. Hmm. I love... Uh, having arguments and writing wrongs that were done to me in the shower at the end of the day. (laughs) I love being woken up in the morning by my one-year-old gently rubbing my back and stroking my hair. Oh, that's beautiful. That is really sweet. That's like a Norman Rockwell painting. Yeah. Uh, Let me me finish before I turn around and smack her face. (laughs) I love feeding ducks. There is something nice about feeding Or just any birds. Yeah. I, I, I think part of it, too, is that they that they trust you and they move in close to you. Oh, yeah, you feel like a king. Yeah. I love it. Um, oh, I love this one. I love paying for the person's coffee behind me in the Starbucks drive through What a beautiful gesture. What an amazing human being to actually do that. Yeah. Uh, okay, this one's oddly specific, but I love going out onto my balcony and eating my lunch out there and watching people walk below me and it makes me feel like a king (laughs) um 
I love going out of town for a few days and then coming home to a DVR full of my favorite shows that I missed. Are we out of loves? I can make up a few. Absolutely. I'm out of pre-written ones. Um, Okay. I love when I'm in a record store and I find a record that I want at full priced and then right behind it, there's a used one for a lot less. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, Deborah says, uh, I love the fact that I've never said one negative thing about myself in front of my daughters. That's good. That's really good. Uh, I love when a book is able to make me cry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is rare, but... Have you seen the movie uh, The Life of Pi? No, I haven't. Oh, there was a moment in that when I just started fucking bawling. And I, and halfway through that movie, I was like, I don't know if I like this movie. <laughs> and then, yeah. Oh, I, I find myself crying in movies that probably shouldn't be cried in, but just anything, any sort of sentiment will get me immediately. Um, Deborah says, I love playing spider solitaire in bed in the dark before I go to sleep because it never fails to knock me out better than any sleeping pill ever could. And that's her last love. I think my last love would have to be... Um, I love that I'm not as afraid anymore. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Many thanks to uh, to Tom. And uh, as I mentioned, we we did this uh, about eight eight or so months ago. And I emailed him um, yesterday and asked him how he was doing. And uh, this is the email I got back from him. Uh, Paul, so great to to hear from you. Uh, As for how I'm holding up, I couldn't be better. Between therapy, having a family brought closer together by this, and just living one day at a time in the present, I feel pretty good, which is nothing to shake a stick at. As for the toxicology report, it was deemed an intentional overdose, which we had all assumed, but there's that. I'm happy to say that, yes, I'm still doing stand-up, and that's easily the best thing I've ever done with my short life. It truly does feel like it's what I was put here to do. It's just the greatest. The amount of amazing people and incredibly fun experiences I've had just starting out these past nine months is astounding. To update the listeners, I'm still pretty much the same person from uh, eight or so months ago, the young, sober, new comic trying to learn how to be a good person and make his life the best he can. The only difference being, when we were recorded, it was at one of the lowest points in my life. And now, aside from the anxiety and depression ingrained in my DNA, I'm the happiest I've ever been. I should have added uh, on... I should have ended on that, but yes, I'll send you a half-decent picture of myself for the website later today. And as for a page to link to, I guess my Twitter account, as gross as it feels to plug that, it's at Tomothy, T-H-O-M-O-T-H-Y. Um, great hearing from you, Paul. Hope we get to talk again soon. And um, thank you, Tom. His, uh, his episode really, really touched me. Um, before we get into the surveys, I uh, want to remind you guys there's a couple of different ways to support the show. If you feel so inclined, you can support us financially by going to the website, mentalpod.com, and making either a one-time PayPal donation um, or my favorite, a recurring monthly donation. And I have to uh, take a moment out to thank you guys that are monthly donors and people that have donated. Um, I was able to go plunk a little bit of uh, mental pod money down for a $300 a month um, office space so that I can record without my dogs barking in the background. And um, I got a little emotional when I walked into that's a dinky little office in a ratty little building in a, in a kind of a seedy part of, uh, of the valley. But 
it just felt like um I don't know, it just felt like it, it was an extension of this community that, that we're building together and and it's your guys' money that um that bought that you know, we're renting that little three hundred dollar a month uh place, but I'm looking forward to putting some lights and microphones and stuff in there and um I just want to thank you um, because your support just means, it really means a lot to me. Um, You can also support us financially by uh, shopping through our Amazon search portal. It's on the um, homepage right-hand side about halfway down. And Amazon gives us a couple of nickels. It doesn't cost you anything. Um, You can support us non-financially by going to iTunes, uh, giving us a good rating. That boosts our ranking brings more people to the show. And I'm going to brag for a second, and I suppose I'm, I'm also uh, high-fiving you guys, but we've had almost 2,000 people um, give uh, rate the show. You can rate it up to five stars, and um, 1,800 of the 1,900 ratings are five stars. And uh, I just shake my head in amazement when I when I look at that. It's like, wow, this, is, this show is really striking a chord with with people and uh i never in a million years imagined that when i when i started doing this that it would um resonate as much as i hate that word with uh with people um who knew admitting that you're a jackass could be so uh so freeing and so uh critically rewarding all right let's get into the surveys this is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Cormac. And I just want to just read this one thing. He writes, uh, Deepest, darkest thoughts. I wish that I would get seriously injured or that someone in my family would die just so I could talk to someone. That kind of breaks my heart and just makes me think, Cormac, it, I, I, I so get that because I used to have that feeling because I didn't know how to ask for help. And I think I had to see my imminent death to scare me enough to say, to another person, help me. I can't do this on my own anymore. And so I encourage you to not wait until something gives you the opportunity to do that. Find someone that you feel safe with, even if it's a physician. Um, that, that's my thought. Um, and then here's here's another one that is basically the same thing. This is from a woman who calls herself Eddie. And deepest, darkest thoughts, I think about hurting myself or attempting suicide, but not succeeding. I don't want to die. I just want my friends and family members to know I'm in pain. Please, you guys, please go talk to somebody. It's, it is so much less scary than you think it is. I think a lot of us think it's going to be scary because our template is often um, family members or parents or authority figures who have let us down. But there's so many people that won't let you down, especially therapists and support groups. This is from the Shame and Secret survey, um, and uh, I'm just reading a, uh, a little section of this. This is from I Did Bake Naked. Gotta love that name. She is uh, in her 20s, and she writes, uh, Deepest, darkest thoughts, I want to have a food from every category of the junk food pyramid on my kitchen table. I want to eat all of it. Then I want to watch TV, not be able to move because I'm in so much pain from overeating, and then fall asleep. I'll wake up and be able to visually see how bloated I am in my face. This is a fantasy of mine. I've admitted a fraction of this to most of my close family, friends, and so uh, and so on. No one can relate to the small fraction I tell them. How can I admit the real truth then? And she uh, adds, I'm not overweight. Which kind of makes me hate her on a certain level. 
uh, unless she's just thinking about the food and not eating it. But uh, fuck, I could. I wish I could. I wish I could go back and be that fourteen-year-old kid that uh, could have three chocolate shakes. Then again, I was also living with my mom. <laughs> Scratch that. Um, this is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself probably diseased. Uh, deepest, darkest secrets, I think I was raped by my ex-boyfriend. Um, and then fast forwarding in the, in the survey, did these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? I feel ashamed of myself because I let that incident happen to myself. And then I didn't listen to my mom who would absolutely hate me if she knew that I was abused or caught in STD. I probably would kill myself if I told her and she disowned me. She is really all that I have right now and I feel so alone. Wow, it really sounds like she is not there for you. It sounds like she is a real fucking narcissist who can only accept you when you fit into her model of um, what she thinks her child should be. She really sounds like she's treating you like an object um, or something, but it's she doesn't sound like a, a she has a lot of empathy she sounds really um like she's got a lot of fucking issues i encourage you to find someone that's safe to open up to because your mom does not sound safe um this is from same survey filled out by laura and her deepest darkest thought uh i want to be an unproductive member of society uh i would i want to lay in my bed listening to music other people created relishing in the fact that I am a breathing potato. I want someone to fuck... I would actually enjoy trying some breathing potato fries. wonder if they're like sweet potato fries. Uh, I want someone to fuck me so hard that it hurts. Uh, to just take control and do it. Press me up against a wall and give it to me. I don't want to die. I just want to go away. I yearn to be nothing, to not be a person. I already don't feel like one, so why should I keep trying so hard to be something I'm not? I don't see a point in doing anything. There's no meaning, no purpose, no driving force behind anything. I just hate everything and everyone. I want to get into a car accident so people will feel bad for me and I can lie in a hospital bed and not do anything. I hate my mom so much I wish she was dead. I hate myself because I've never had a traumatic event happen to me and I feel like I shouldn't feel this way unless I have. Um, sexual fantasy, most powerful uh, the sexual fantasy that I think about night and night again is giving up all control. Not necessarily a violent or abusive one. I just want someone to tell me what to do. Not give a shit what I want. Just do what they want and do it hard. Like if they want me to suck their dick, I want them to make me. Or just fuck me hard and from behind so I have no power. I do nothing. They do whatever they want. I want them to take advantage of me with the most confidence someone could possibly have. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? No, because that would mean I gave gave myself some kind of control, like I told them to do it. I just want someone to do it without me saying anything. Telling them defeats the purpose. Uh, I feel like I'm a lonely bitch that just wants to get fucked and that's it. I don't give a fuck about emotions and I don't feel like a person because of that. You know, another possibility is that you feel things really deeply and they're so painful that you want to numb yourself and you do numb yourself um but god it, it breaks my heart to hear how har harshly you talk about yourself and i just have to say about the fantasy thing 
that might be a little bit of a catch-22, wanting someone to take control like that without you saying anything, waiting for them to do that. Um, I just, I don't know, that sounds like, why I don't know. I should just shut up. I should just shut up. Because I wonder if I comment on these too much. But uh, I send in you a big hug, Laura. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself Creep. And his deepest, darkest secret, uh, he's, he's 24, and he writes, Exhibitionism. I enjoy seeing if I can get away with not being caught or noticed masturbating or spying or showing my genitalia in a public area. In layman's terms, I'm the creepy guy in the row behind you on the bus whose eyes can be felt on you, peeking over your seat to catch a glimpse of cleavage. I suppose I'm a curious boy trapped in a man's body. I feel I should include the fact that I'm a virgin and have never been close to a woman. Well, that knew I was there. I know, super creepy. My bread and butter is staying over at friends' houses and sneaking into where the girls are sleeping and trying to pull down the covers a bit, putting my penis close to their bodies slash mouth slash hands. Um... Fantasy is most powerful to you. I've already said all I could. Uh, they're not fantasies. They're reality. Um, oh, her, his deepest, darkest thoughts were to subdue a woman with chloroform or some oral anesthetic just so she is passed out so I can have my way with her in order to save her from feeling pain or fear. Um, and um, I don't believe he's doing that, though. Um, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? He writes, yes, at least I'm not a complete sociopath. I have remorse. However, I take comfort in the fact that my disease is not being contracted by my victims because they are unaware of my deviance. The cycle will end with me. Well, I have to say, um, it you don't know whether or not they're aware of it. I've read so many surveys of women waking up to something being done to them, but then they have that freeze thing that happens, um, which many people have, men and women, and they continue to print, uh, pr- they pretend as if they're asleep because they don't know how to confront the situation. So you may, you will probably, if you continue doing this, traumatize somebody. And I don't want to you to, to, to think that you're a monster um, but something's going on with you that you need to talk to somebody about. And um, if if you can't go there for yourself, go there for that potential person that you're eventually going to wind up hurting and traumatizing. So um, I'm sending you a big hug, creep, um, and also giving you a little push on the back to get to a get to a therapist. Get to a support group. Get get somewhere out of your out of your own head because that sounds like an addiction, and addictions don't go away um, without intensive work and support. Um, this is from the same survey filled out by Alice, and um, she writes about her sexual fantasies. They always really are about uh, the guy fucking me touching me, kissing me until I'm ecstatic beyond satisfied. Nothing to do with his satisfaction or what he likes. Just me getting my fill of pleasure with no responsibility or owing anyone anything. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? I've been able to communicate openly with my husband to a certain extent. He is very supportive, loving, and giving and loves to please me. He wants to make me happy and goes to great lengths to fulfill me and is a really uh, beautiful and amazing person. 
Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? Yes, I think I am a monster and a sex fiend. I think that what I want is beyond the realm of what a human being can give or should be expected to give. I feel ashamed of my lust for sex. I do not want just any sex, though. Not many people turn me on, and I just want my monogamous relationship to be voracious and ecstatic. Oh my God, it is, Alice. Of all the surveys I've ever read, it sounds like you and your husband are like two perfect pieces of a puzzle, sexually, that just snap into place, and you're beating yourself up about it. You're not a monster and a sex fiend. You're, you, have a, you have a healthy sexual appetite, and you en- enjoy being ravished, and your husband enjoys ravishing you. I'm so uncomfortable I use the word ravished. Um, give into it. Celebrate it. I hope that as you're listening to this, you are having an orgasm and he is giving it to you and he and you are not considering his feelings at all. Now that sounded like a put down, but it wasn't. Oh, I'm going into a wormhole. This is from the same survey. I, I But I just, I had to read that one because it's like, oh my God, there's so many, I read so many of these things where these people have all this work ahead of them to get to a place where they can have the kind of intimacy and connectedness that it sounds like you have. Uh, Same survey filled out by um, a guy who calls himself young and sad. He writes, when I was 16, I had to stop my father from killing himself. I consider myself straight and have no emotional connection to men, but I am sometimes sexually attracted to them. I've attempted to have sex with a man once and I didn't like it at all. I often post ads on Craigslist looking for anonymous sex, even though I have a girlfriend that I love very much. I hurt so, so much every time I do this, even though I have never acted on any of these urges. I have a small penis and I feel that I'm not good enough for my girlfriend, which is probably why I end up looking to strangers for intimacy. I fear she may have found out about the mistakes I made, and I have no idea what I would do if she were to leave me. I despise myself for what I have done to her, but I know that if I told her, there would be no saving things between us. Um, the environment that he was raised in, he writes, my father always had anger issues. He would be verbally abusive and could switch back and forth between being the nicest man you've ever met and a monster consumed by his anger. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I often want to relinquish control and have someone else do whatever they'd like to me. I believe this stems from the fact that I'm ashamed of my body and genitalia and have trouble making sexual advances with anyone. I thought I would be a bottom in the homosexual sense, but I found no enjoyment or attraction in it once I tried it. Um, it stopped almost immediately. Do you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? I don't know. I often feel pressured and scared when I attempt to have sex with my girlfriend now, even though I desperately want to. I'm terrified that if I open up to someone and tell them all my sexual quirks and fantasies, they will see me completely differently or that they will see me as a disgusting and dirty person. You're not a disgusting and dirty person. Um, And it's clear from the environment that you were raised on that, you know, it was invalidating and scary and you never knew where you stood with a verbally abusive person, you know, who would lure you in with niceness and then punish you with rage. Um, Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? I absolutely hate myself. I go to the gym constantly because I feel inadequate as a man due to the size of my genitalia. 
I consider myself generally attractive, but I doubt that any woman would stay with me for a long period of time because of my shortcomings. I've struggled with depression since I was 16, and I started having anxiety attacks this past year, uh, usually ending in me vomiting. I feel as though I will end up alone because I'm awkward in social situations, and my head is so fucked up. If I were someone else, I would never associate with me. I've been smoking marijuana heavily for the past two years to deal with my depression and anxiety, and I've been caught by my parents four times. Even though I don't believe I'm harming myself, um, I feel extremely guilty about smoking, even though I continue to do it anyway. Thus, I'm a terrible boyfriend, son, and person in general. Wow, it sounds like your dad or somebody else is has just buried such terrible core messages in your head because you sound like a really sweet guy you know whose whose sexuality doesn't fit clearly into a box like most of us and um i just want to send you a hug um i want to send you a hug and encourage you to find a place that's that's safe you know my support group is just the safe all of them are just the safest places in the world i've been to support groups that don't feel safe and i leave them and you know when i find it a different um meeting of that of that support group and i encourage you to find get have a place in your life that's safe maybe it's the therapist's office and maybe it's a you know uh, coffee with a friend who gets you but find some place um where you can be yourself because um there's nothing wrong with you there's nothing wrong with you um this is from the Shame and Secrets, uh, filled out by. Um, he doesn't give himself a name. He puts uh, BPD two PTSD due to molestation by my mother and uh, work with survivors of torture. Um, Deepest, darkest thoughts. My mother was sexual with me from the time I was very young, six years old, touching, kissing inappropriately, getting into bed and touching in inappropriate ways. The touching stopped when I was 16, but then she continued to harass me with the details of her sexual life with dad uh, and boyfriend. Yes, two different people. Um, Deepest, darkest secrets. Oh, and he's gay and in his 40s. Um, I'm afraid that I will hurt myself in ways I will not be able to heal. I'm afraid that my fantasies of being raped will put me into dangerous situations. In a dangerous situation. I'm afraid that I cannot make a connection with people, even my long-term partner. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful. Rape fantasy is where I'm raped by a man. Um, would you ever consider telling a partner? No, I don't think I want to engage in this fantasy. Um, do these secrets and thoughts... Uh, generate any particular feelings. Yes, I feel enraged at myself, at my mother, at everyone. Um, BPD-2, um, usually when I hear BPD, I, I believe it's usually referring to um, borderline personality disorder, but um, BPD-2 makes me think that he's, he's saying a bipolar 2 because I'm not aware of a 1 or 2 um, classification of borderline personality disorder. And uh, if I remember correctly, it's actually being um, taken out of the, the DSM. Um, anyway, I digress. Um, he, he also goes on to say that um, 
Uh, I had to seek professional help after I left the city where I had friends and work to follow my partner to a new city. When I was alone with no work, no friends, and in a strange place, I realized I couldn't handle my feelings alone anymore. I was in so much pain physically. I couldn't understand what was wrong. I wanted to go to an emergency room and tell them my stomach is on fire with anger. My muscles ache with intense sadness. My head is exploding with happiness, sadness, rage, sexual desire, all at the same time. I couldn't sleep for days, maybe weeks. I felt my body was going to fail or I was going to do something to stop the pain. Uh, in therapy, I was surprised to find out other people experienced their emotions physically like I do and did. I thought I was crazy. It was a revelation to me that other people experienced the world like this. I've embraced, embraced my BPD-2 diagnosis. It makes me feel like I can work towards being healthier. In therapy and with medication, I feel functional again. Um, it's taken a while. Thanks for your podcast. Um, well, the feeling, the feelings really intensely sounds like bipolar or uh, borderline personality, but um, bipolar, the the mania part sounds kind of like um, borderline personality. I guess it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. The fucking guy's getting help. Shut up, Paul. Good for you. Uh, I'm not going to repeat his long name. This is from the Happy uh, Moment survey filled out by David, and he writes, One of the happiest moments I can recall was in high school in English. We were assigned a project for The Great Gatsby. There were a few options for it, and I chose to shoot a scene from the book in a four- or five-minute short. I grabbed a few of my friends, and we spent the next few days in my living room shooting one of the emotional climaxes of the book. None of us acted well, and I couldn't remember half my fucking lines, but it was probably the most fun I've ever had. Just five teenagers sitting around, cracking jokes, goofing off, and having fun with the school project. I just felt connected to my friends in a way I rarely had before. There's nothing better than making something with other funny and creative people, even if it's just mangling a few pages of dialogue from classic literature. Oh, I love that. Thank you for sharing that, David. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Saz, S-A-Z. Um, she is straight, 19, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse. Uh, some stuff happened, but she doesn't know if it counts as sexual abuse, um, but she doesn't specify. Um, what are your deepest, darkest thoughts? Not things you would act on, but things you're ashamed to admit you think about. She writes, incest with my 10-year-old sister, incest with my dad, thoughts about raping disabled and mentally handicapped people, etc. Deepest, darkest secrets masturbated and while testing different thoughts thoughts of incest with my younger sister some of my best friends etc bring me to orgasm um sexual fantasies most powerful to you incestuous fantasies raping my younger sister being raped by my own father raping disabled people having sex with school chaplain um would you ever share this with anybody no fear of being thought of as sick and wrong um, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings? Yes, shame, disgust, self-loathing, as if something is wrong with me. I say it all the time on the podcast. Um, it, it's not our thoughts that matter. It's our actions. And none of us have any control over what brings us to orgasm. Um, or what makes us come. You know, what, what turns us on. There, That's the phrase I was looking for. Um... Same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Fran Fran. I believe she filled out another one of our surveys in a previous show. And uh, I just wanted to read an excerpt, Deepest Darkest Secrets. I have cut myself since high school. I'm now about to graduate from college and have been in therapy getting help for it. 
I'm to the point where I can pretty openly talk about cutting to my therapist, but I have the hardest time admitting that I might have an eating disorder. I exercise at least three hours a day, sometimes up to six hours a day. I restrict calories and I sometimes make myself throw up if I I feel like I've eaten too much. But I feel stupid admitting these things in therapy or to anyone because I don't think I am skinny enough to really have an eating disorder. In my mind, it is not that serious because I am not extremely thin. It is exhausting to keep it up though and I am just exhausted from trying to keep living like this. It is not the results that makes you an anorexic. It is the relationship to the food, the relationship to your body that is the issue. You know, I'm an alcoholic. I didn't drink during the day. I never got a DUI, but I'm absolutely an alcoholic, and I didn't think I was until I couldn't stop drinking. And I would have eventually been drinking during the day And I would have eventually gotten DUIs and probably seriously hurt myself or somebody else. Don't wait to become 65 pounds to admit that you have an eating disorder. From the stuff you've listed here, that sounds to me like an eating disorder. Only you can really admit to yourself whether or not you're uh, an addict, an anorexic, or, uh, or bulimic. Please share that with your therapist. Um, you know, it's like a heroin addict saying, well, I'm not a heroin addict because my arms are still pretty clean. And then another example that's un- unnecessary. This is filled out from uh, Christopher, Shame and Secret Survey. Um, he is straight in his 30s. Um, he, about his sexuality, he calls himself a non-practicing nymphomaniac who was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional. My dad was, is an alcoholic and used to fight with my mom every night. Constant tension in my house caused me uh, to sleepwalk. Every month my parents would tell my brothers uh, and I that we were going to, they were going to get a divorce. It's hard to read. Half of the, 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 the type is like, half of it is cut off, so I'm struggling to read it and talk at the same time. Uh, Half the time, um, (laughs) every month, my parents would tell my brothers and I that they were going to get a divorce. They never did, but I did find out that they were cheating with each other's best friends because I walked in on them between ages 12 and 16. Um, God, that's got to be painful and confusing. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. I was fondled around ages five to seven a lot by a single mother who had daughters around my age. Yeah, that's sexual abuse. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. Um, There was a lot of men that came in and out of that house, and when I think back, perhaps those girls were being abused because all they wanted to do when I went over there was to play, um, make out, or have sex. Uh, at such a young age, I know that kids explore, but these experiences were almost pornographic. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I want to have sex with pubescent girls. I find them attractive. Those thoughts of mine disgust me. Um, also, I'd like to rape a woman who has rejected me sexually. I'm kind of fucked up. Even though I have these thoughts, I believe that I'd never act on them. If I did, I'd go mentally insane and kill myself. I think sometimes about burning down my house and watching it go up in flames. 
deepest, darkest secrets. I've masturbated at every job I've had, not in public view. My friend and I are both straight males, but I gave him a blowjob. It didn't bring me any pleasure or disgust. It was just something I did. This happened over 10 years ago, and I can still feel it in my mouth. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I covered it in my deepest, darkest secret portion. My current fantasy is to have sex. It's been several years since I've been intimate or even held, so I'm going for the basics here. However, in college, I did have a best friend who decided she wanted to be gay. We were lovers without the contact. My fantasy would be that she would have chosen me to be her first to see if she was truly gay. Instead, she chose some chump who helped her confirm she was gay. She was my love. I should have been her test subject. Well, you know what? If you had been, then you would have gone, oh, I was the one that turned her gay. I was the one that confirmed her. So I don't think playing that over in your mind, you're, you're going to come out with any kind of victory. The brain has a genius way of kicking the shit out of us in any situation. Um, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? I would never tell anyone my fantasies. Maybe my psychotherapist, but my brothers already keep their distance from me and call me a pedophiliac because one day I whistled at a high school girl that walked by my house. So I have to hide my identity like Batman. The general public want people like me dead. Um, my thoughts disgust me at times. I think that if I had a proper adult relationship, I'd forget about teens and rape. I think I'm fucked in the head. I am seeing a shrink and have been diagnosed as bipolar, major anxiety, and borderline personality disorder, and I'm a binge drinker, so there's a lot going on in my head. It's a zoo in here. Well, I'm sending you a big hug, and I think the first thing to address would be the binge drinking because um, that lowers your inhibitions, and if you got another uh, issue that you're struggling with um, keeping in check or you're worried about keeping in check... Um, but sending you some love. Um, this is from Zoe, uh, Shame and Secret Survey. She's in her 30s. Uh, and Deepest Darkest Thoughts, I think about running away, uh, although I would never seriously do it. I'm 30 plus. How embarrassing to even contemplate that. Do you have any idea, Zoe, how many people say that in that question? That is probably the overwhelming, either wanting to die or wanting to run away. That's like the most common thought that people have and then stuff to do with, with fucking um, or being fucked. Uh, deepest, darkest secrets, I feel like I lack empathy or at least that my empathy pales in comparison to the depth of empathy that others possess. And I fear I learned that trait from my mom who completely lacked empathy for me. I feel like I am a poor partner, friend, and relative as a result. I don't work as hard as I should to be there for others and my social anxieties certainly don't help the matter either. You know, Zoe, I don't know you, but from what I've, your mother sounds like uh, a bit of a narcissist and for what I've been reading this last year um, listen to the, the episode before this one about co-narcissism and I think you will hear your story in there and I can tell you people that lack empathy don't think about lacking empathy they just don't it doesn't register on the radar people that worry about lacking empathy are generally extremely empathetic person per people who actually suffer from feeling too much for other people and then that becomes an issue and they ignore their own needs. And a lot of times that's pounded into their heads because they had a projecting parent who told the child that they were the one who was selfish. Yeah, talking about yourself, Paul? 
Oh, maybe a little. Yeah, my mom did that all the time. I was spoiled and rotten and selfish and a martyr and all these things that I came to discover when I described my mother's behavior to my therapist. They're like, well, that's what she was. Which is not to say that I don't have my fucking issues and I can't be a douche, but... Um, this is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Rain. She's straight in her 30s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, um, and... Deepest, darkest thoughts are then I'm a disgusting human being. Oh, and she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. And I have to say, of all uh, the people that that check that off um, were the victims and never reported it, usually wind up having the most amount of mental and emotional um, conflict inside themselves. Uh, I was sexually abused repeatedly from ages 9 through 12. These memories only surfaced three years ago. I am in my 30s. I feel deeply responsible for all of it. Oh, that breaks my heart. Oh. Basically, that I should have not let any of it happen. Even if you instigated it as a child or a young teen, it is not your fault. It is up to the adult to say that's not appropriate. The first time at nine, the man in his 50s took me to his bedroom and had me touch him and then he had intercourse with me. I remember thinking that if his wife gets home and catches me with her husband, she will be very mad at me. My older brother did lots and lots of stuff with me from touching to sex. He also offered me up to one of his friends who I let have sex with me. I was 10 to 12. One of my most shameful things I remember is thinking that my brother's friend was not as good at sex as my brother was. I have nothing but disgust for myself. At 12, I remember thinking I was pregnant, and I did not know if it was my brother's baby or his friend's. Thank God I was not pregnant. It saddens me that I had to deal with that on my own. I never told anybody about any of this abuse. There was no one in my life I felt safe enough to tell. Oh, Rain. I wonder if it's fitting that the name you choose is the moniker of the rape and incest national network because if you're not aware of that go to immediately go to rain.org r-a-i-n-n.org and get some free counseling um, anybody out there who's been um, sexually abused um, as an adult or a child um, and then she says this is disgusting my fantasies are disgusting i hate myself I have lots of things to be ashamed of in my life. You have nothing to be ashamed of. Um, and she said that she's had an eating disorder for 25 years. Well, who would want, who who would be able to accept their body, you know, when stuff like that is, is done to it? Because that's the first place we go. That's the first thing we blame. Um, I was at war with my body. Still am in many ways. Still hate many parts of my of my body, and um, it's so much related to to trauma and blaming ourselves. Um, this is shame and secrets. Let me see how we are on time. Shame and secrets filled out by a guy who calls himself Fat Creepy Guy, and I just want to read a. a, a portion of it he writes this is pretty horrible and it'll haunt me forever and it's a very it's very disgusting but true when i was 18 and a virgin no hope of ever getting laid i was working in a restaurant and had an american pie incident with a large roast beef enough said i was so unbelievably horny and that was a foul horrible evil 
truly depraved thing to do. It is sickening just recalling this. I've never told anyone about this. I was so desperate for sex at the time, I wouldn't have even thought of doing that if not for the chef who had me and another cook stick our fingers in it to feel how pussy-like it was. I have more, but I've got to stop. This is the darkest thing I've done. If that is the darkest thing you've done, God bless you. God bless you. That is so much more comedic than it is dark. That is such a teenage thing to do and that you're being so hard on yourself. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I enjoy wearing panties and bikinis, feeling the softness and knowing there was a beautiful pussy rubbing against them once. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I love this guy. I think you should open up a beach apparel slash butcher shop and guys can come in with their girlfriends and everybody can leave happy and i'm not making light of you i uh god i i wish you were here so i can give you a big hug and tell you to lighten up this is uh, you know what i think i'm gonna skip this one Oh, you know what? Um, no, I do want to read this. Um, this is filled out by Anastasia, and she writes, I have recurring fantasies of my mother taking her own life, as she has threatened to do this all through my upbringing. Only now, since I've broken off all contact with her after 25 years of abuse, her threats have become more frequent, and it appears more serious. Her friends contact me on a regular basis, blaming me for her suffering, and my mother's posts... Uh, Facebook status updates about what a horrible daughter she has. At this point, almost all my deepest, darkest thoughts circle around her killing herself and how good it would feel to finally be done with all of it, to finally be free. Deepest, darkest secrets. I was molested by my mother's boyfriend when I was five, but I don't remember much of it, and my mother has never wanted to discuss it, even though she caught us together in her bed. She continues, I never, and and, and then she was uh, sexually violated by, um, um, when she was older at 18. And she writes, I never reported any of it because I know the way the system works and I've been brought up feeling such immense guilt about everything from my mother that somehow I figure all of this really was my own fault. My mother even told me so just before I cut off communication with her. That was actually the last straw for me. Now if she kills herself, it will be all my fault for shutting her out of my life. She lets me know this through her friends, so I guess when that happens, my deepest, darkest secret will be that I killed my own mother. Oh my God. You are not responsible for anybody else. And guess what? When you went to her, when she caught her boyfriend in bed with you at five, and she wouldn't that allow that to be discussed, she cut off communication with you. Fuck her. Fuck her. I I hope it doesn't this episode doesn't sound like I'm picking on moms because there's a shitload of really bad moms in this one. I'm not. Um that's just how this this one happened to to kind of unfold. Um Shame and Secret Survey. Um just want to read one excerpt. This is from Pokemon Master, and she says, I have a desire to take a scalpel and pull it down from the shoulder 
to the wrist and peel off the skin. Note, I've never self-harmed other than once when I drew a Triforce on my arm with a knife out of boredom. Um, and her sexual fantasies, most of the time I fixate on scenes from TV shows or movies, hetero or gay, either girl on girl or guy on guy. If I try to picture people I know, generally I can only picture their face, but not the actual act. Um, I feel frustrated that I can't picture myself in the scene properly. Thank you for sharing that, Pokemon. Pokemon Master. Um, this is an excerpt from Shame and Secrets filled out by Mr. Fisty, and he writes... Um, deepest darkest thoughts mostly self-harm or harming others I like to hope for harm on myself to get out of situations I also hope for major horrible events to occur such as bombings or shootings to happen and to make me feel out of control of a situation I also imagine how people will kill me when I first meet them I also imagine killing people I don't like slash venerable people such as children and the elderly it sounds maybe like a little bit like uh, unwanted thoughts um Deepest, darkest secrets, I lie about situations for no real reasons. I've lied about drug addictions and rape and s on several accounts and have also lied about having mental disorders and severe physical acts of violence slash self-harm. Um, sending you some love. This is filled out by Greg, um, and I wanted to read this one too because I felt like it, w it was a little similar to... Um, the, the previous one. He writes, I'm a liar. Uh, deepest, darkest seats. I'm a liar about everything. My ancestors, social status and history, my own relationship history, my health, everything. I have bipolar disorder. I'm mostly manic. My depressions don't last more than a week or two, but I sometimes overplay them to get antidepressants to get me manic. I also sometimes think that I don't have bipolar and that I'm just a Munchausen case. I've only been with prostitutes and never sober. I told three girls that I liked them and none of them believed me. I ended up stalking one of them for two to three years, only when hypomanic. Probably it happened because I don't know how to communicate my feelings since I don't even grasp them. When I was 14 to 15, I had my first hypomanic episodes. I spent them alone with a telescope and bottles of whiskey. The bottles from my grandmother's bar were vanishing and when my parents started asking questions, I made them think that my granny has Alzheimer's. I love being a manic a bit too much. I would change any personal relationship with a manic episode, and that's what I'm doing, actually. The silly thing is that I don't know why I am that screwed up. My brother, a year younger, turned out to be the epitome of normality, and I, an ex-genius child prodigy, alcohol pill popper who lives between his ears, and every time he gives it a try to get out of there, realizes how incompetent he is. And imagine that I've been in therapy all through my late teens and since I've been diagnosed two years ago. All in all, what I only care about is to burn my plethora of high-functioning brain cells through manic episodes and alcohol. You know, if you, if you are really, um, you really do have an alcohol problem, I encourage you to try to get in touch with your emotions because the one thing that I see that keeps more quote-unquote smart people from getting sober is their refusal to, to leave the intellectual plane and get in touch with their body and their feelings and and to get in touch with their spirit because the, the spirit is the thing that drags us down, that, that makes us want to keep getting fucked up. Um, and we think that we can jumpstart it with our intellect and we can't. Um, so I hope that makes sense. 
This is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, filled out by, um, oh, from, uh, by Bimbop, which I found out is a drink, by the way. She uh, filled something out a little while ago, and she writes, um, what would you like people to say about you um, at your funeral? Of course, let's just say right now she was brilliant. An original thinker, philanthropist, and generous and non-judgmental spirit. She was really concerned with the bigger picture. Years before her fame and in turn fortune were realized, she established herself and her views as a lay person, a commoner, and she operated from this position until the end. That's so awesome. Uh, how does writing that make you feel? Awesome. I would fucking love that. Having just started on my master's degree in creative writing, I will still hold that in my mind as a possibility. Uh, if you had a time machine, how would you use it? Go back to early childhood, one to six, and see how my mother acted towards me. Boy, this is the this is the um, the bad mother um, episode. Uh, I'm supposed to feel pity for my mother who has gradually declined in health over the past couple decades because of her anorexia and related health disorders. She was in the hospital and almost died. She had her colon removed and now has a bag. She is really pathetic, but she is a mean-spirited and abusive evil person. Of course, I'm supposed to feel sorry for her, but I don't, honestly. Even from a Christian point of view, she deserves it. Dragging a five-year-old around the house by her hair is not okay. How does it make you feel writing that out? Like I'm justified in thinking my mom is a total evil bitch. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? No. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better? Maybe. Thank you for sharing that. And you know, who knows whether or not your mother is evil, but what she did is fucking evil. Um, shouldn't feel this way. Filled out by uh, Dizzy Bird 55 she is, uh, how old is she? She's in her 20s. And I'm supposed to feel guilty about cutting off my father from my life. Yay, a bad dad. Um, I'm supposed to feel guilty about cutting him off from my life, but I don't. I feel guilty that my sister can't. It feels like a relief. Um, I don't think I'm abnormal uh, rationally. No, but emotionally, I feel like I must just be irreparably broken. Um, <laughs> would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? No, I want to be special. That's awesome. And I feel the same way about um, about my mom, is that I don't feel guilty about cutting her off, but I do feel guilty that then my brother bears the brunt of dealing with her. Uh, I love this one from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey about how would you use a time machine. Uh, this was filled out by a guy called Beardface, and he said, I would watch an empire rise and fall. I fucking love that. That is awesome. Um, what a patient guy. Um this is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey filled out by Lex, and she writes, um, I think it's a she, yeah. She writes, I'm supposed to feel happy about my mother's progress and sobriety, but I don't. I feel angry because I'm the only one who knows she isn't. And, you know, that doesn't sound like she's progressing and sober, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, she also writes, I'm supposed to feel angry towards my boyfriend for his emotional abuse, but I don't. I feel forgiving. Um... And she's wondering why she puts up with her with her uh, boyfriend's shit. And, you know, I think sometimes when you wonder why you're having trouble in a relationship, a lot of times if you look in a relationship with one of your caregivers, that usually answers the question, you know. So it's been my experience that until you 
divorce the parent that is not respecting you, it's hard for you to be comfortable with respect in a relationship. Um, I am going to read one more. How are we on time? All right. God, I didn't think this was going to be this many uh, surveys. This is from, this one's a little dark. Um, this is filled out by Erin Undone. And she is, I guess it's, eh. She's in her 30s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, hell on earth, uh, she writes. She's straight. Um, was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it, thank God. Deepest, darkest thoughts. My daughter is a product of incest between myself and my father. I lied about who the supposed father was, and a DNA test recently confirmed that she and I share the same father. As she gets older, I see him in her, and there are times when I want to claw my eyes out to get away from, quote, him, or scream at my daughter to leave me alone when I find myself so triggered. My mother and sister committed suicide within a week of each other almost eight years ago, and I have never fully recovered from that. I have a nagging feeling that I can't help but be next, but I know I can't do that because of my daughter and husband who love me. This is this is uh, very dark. I, I apologize if this is um, too dark of an episode, but, um, you know, I'm not going to apologize. I read what I read because it's strike something in me. Deepest, darkest secrets. No one but my therapist knows the truth about my daughter's bio father. I was abused by my father and his friends from the time I was in diapers. They took pictures of what they did to me and those pictures still exist. Oh, that breaks my heart. I always wonder about that, you know, when, when you hear about these rings being broken up and all these pictures being found and you think, what what is it like to be that child that knows that pictures are floating around there of of them? Um, my relationship with my father continued into my 20s and I feel like a whore and that I should have known better. I'm ashamed to say that I still love my parents or at least the idea of them. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. All of my fantasies involve my father. He is dead now and it's the only way I still feel a sick connection to him. It's hard to be specific because there are so many. Um, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? She writes, no, it would devastate my husband to know what I think about when I'm with him sexually. Um, I hate myself. My skin is too tight, and I no longer feel like I'm made for this world. I've been in a hole for so long, I don't know how else to think of myself. Oh, whatever the biggest hug is, Aaron, I'm sending it to you. You are a fucking survivor. And um, I have had incestuous, thought, incestuous thoughts about... Um, my mother, and I don't feel guilt about them anymore. Um, that's that's our way of going back and taking control, and it's hard to admit. <laughs> it's hard to admit that, but the more of us that talk about it, the less shameful we'll feel. And I hope we get to a point one day where people will look at the thoughts in our head and the feelings in our bodies, and it'll be no different than somebody having a cold or something else. Um, that's my that's my hope. So you're not alone. You're not alone. All right, let's fucking spice it up here a little bit, huh? Let's uh, let's get something let's get something a little happy to end on. This is from the um, Happy Moment Survey, and this was filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, 
MaxCore slash Marcus, and he writes, uh, not too long after I was finally diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder came the Christmas holiday. I decided that it would be a good time to reach out to all of the alters, meaning his alternative personalities, that we call the boys. My sister was in town, so I asked her to help me find gifts for each of them. Uh, With eight alters to buy four, we had to limit it to one gift each. It wasn't difficult. They let me know what they wanted. It was interesting. The things they wanted at each age were the things they didn't receive when, quote, I was that age. So now I had all these gifts. Much to my surprise, my husband volunteered to wrap them. He was a bit skittish around the whole DID thing. Who could blame him? So the Thursday after Christmas at my regular therapy appointment, my therapist helped me bring each one forward and give them their gift. Each of them unwrapped their gift on the floor and then we moved on to the next one. It was so wonderful. When we were done, we just stayed quiet for a minute with all of us present. I had never felt love like that. Ever. Just for a few moments, we were all together for the first time. It was so beautiful, so magical, and so powerfully strong a feeling of love that I was speechless for many hours after. That was one of the, if not the happiest moments in my life. Thank you for that, Marcus. And, um, you know, it occurred to me today that in my recovering from addiction and depression and all the battles I've been through, the the cheapest, most widely available anti-anxiety thing that I reach for is meaning and purpose in my life. And unfortunately, it comes in a really plain wrapper, and I often forget that. But when I do connect to other people and feel that sense of meaning and purpose in my life, it always makes me feel like everything's going to be okay. So I encourage you guys, get some get some of that in your life. And um, it helps. It really does. And I hope that you know that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.